Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR-130V-40, Responsibility in Law, Sixth Commandment, Deuteronomy, DOI 24, verses 16-18. Thou shalt not pervert the judgment of the stranger, nor of the fatherless, nor take a widow's raiment to pledge. But thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee thence. Therefore I command thee to do this thing. A central point of biblical law is summed up in a single sentence, Deuteronomy 24, 16. The fathers shall not be put to death for the children, Neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. This is a fundamental and important principle. This law is cited in Kings and Chronicles, as well as in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. There are certain central aspects of this law which must be noted in order to appreciate its significance. First of all, responsibility is an aspect of every law system. Someone must be held responsible whenever there is an offense. No law system can escape this fact. For every crime, there must be a responsibility. This is inescapable. If there is no responsibility, then no law enforcement is possible. Thus, the important question to ask with respect to any doctrine of responsibility is this. Who is responsible? The answer to this question is a religious question. It makes clear how you answer this, what you believe. The responsibility can be attached to the family, to society or the community, to the environment, to the gods, or to a person. Where the responsibility is placed makes for a fundamental difference in your social order. Who is responsible? This is an all-important question. And the way you answer this makes all the difference as to how you begin then to deal with the world. Second, we must note in terms of this law that the biblical doctrine is one of individual responsibility. The essence of sin is personal guilt. According to Genesis 3, verses 9 through 13, the sinner tries to evade personal responsibility. This is basic to his sin so that when God confronted Adam and Eve with their sin, the attitude of Adam was, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she did give me and I did eat. So that Adam, instead of confessing his personal responsibility, blamed Eve, my environment, my wife, and ultimately God 
you, God, are responsible for my sin because you gave Eve to be my wife. And I would never have been in this problem if it had not been the woman and you. Similarly, Eve evaded her responsibility by saying the serpent did give me and I did eat. This, then, is the essence of sin in the biblical point of view, the evasion of personal responsibility. Whereas godly man assumes responsibility for his actions. He does not say it was the condition that made me do this. But I, even I, have done that which is evil in thy sight. Third, related to this question of who is responsible is the question to whom. Because the very word responsible means accountable to someone or to something. So that when you say man is responsible, or if you say society is responsible or the family is responsible, then you have to follow with this point, to whom? And again, this question is all important. And the answer is a religious one. Are you responsible to the family or to the community or to the state? The biblical doctrine is that we are responsible, first of all, to God. In essence, to God, against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done that which is evil in thy sight, David said with respect to his sin. Now, it was an act of adultery so that there was responsibility to a man and to a woman. And yet, in essence, it was to God. Primarily, it was a sin against God. Secondarily, only against man. God confronts man at every point with his total law. And therefore, man has a total responsibility at every point to God essentially and basically to God, only secondarily to man. For we must then say that guilt cannot be shifted to others or passed on to the people around a man. Guilt is non-transferable. This is an important point in theology. A disposition or a nature can be inherited, but not guilt. We may inherit a disposition from our parents which predisposes us to a temper that can lead us into guilty actions or a stubbornness which may be a vice or a virtue depending on how we use it or a disposition perhaps to alcoholism. But we inherit only a nature, not a guilt. Thus, man inherits from Adam a sinful nature. But he does not inherit Adam's guilt. In Adam, we have a nature that is one of total depravity. That is, every aspect of our being is tainted with sin, so that whether it is our intelligence, our mind, or our will, or any other aspect of our being, it is governed by this sin, this 
desire to put ourselves ahead of all else, to be our own God. So we inherit this nature, but we do not inherit Adam's guilt. We then incur our own guilt. This distinction between guilt and nature is fundamental to the biblical doctrine of law, and this is absent from most legal systems. Where guilt is transferable, then punishment is transferable. Of course, this is, in essence, the blood feud. We're all familiar with the story of the Hatfields and McCoys, and some years ago, Life magazine had a long, long article on the Hatfield-McCoy feud. Now, what was the essence of the feuding? Well, if one Hatfield had done something, then all the Hatfields had to pay for it. If one McCoy did something, then all the McCoys were guilty of it, so that you could shoot any Hatfield or any McCoy for what one Hatfield and one McCoy had done. Guilt, in other words, was transferable. The guilt of one is the guilt of all. Now, this is, in essence, not only the position of the old blood feud, but it is the essence of modern sociology. We were given <coughs> quite a treatment along these lines when President Kennedy was assassinated. We were told that we were all guilty. The guilt was transferable. Responsibility guilt and punishment are inseparable under law or under thought. You cannot separate them. Where there is responsibility, there is guilt, and there must be punishment. So that if you take responsibility away from the individual, where it rests in biblical law, then you transfer also guilt and punishment. And so it is when you begin to weaken Christian faith or to destroy it. You destroy also the doctrine of individual responsibility, which has been responsible for all the progress of the Western world. And you pave the way for collective guilt and collective punishment. This is the essence of Marxism. Marxism holds an entire class to be guilty. And this guilt attaches itself and is transferred to anyone who in any respect, by any opinion, associates itself with that class. Responsibility, guilt, and punishment, because they are a unified system, are transferred by Marxism to everyone that opposes the communist regime. Now, because our political philosophers, our sociologists, are not Christian, they themselves are guilty of the same kind of thinking. And so we are all blamed equally for the guilt of a few. And there is a transference of responsibility, guilt, and punishment. 
Today, the doctrine of individual responsibility, the biblical doctrine, has been undermined. And for the undermining of this, we have to go back to the theory of evolution. Basic to evolutionary thought is environmentalism. Man is a product of his environment. He has involved in relationship to a changing environment and the actions of that environment upon him, so that man is a product of nature, of the world. Therefore, man is a creature of his environment rather than a creature of God, and man is what an evolving world has made him and man's actions are a product of that environment and its molding of man. This means, therefore, that the environment is responsible for a man, and the environment must be blamed for what man does. Thus, the family is responsible, the parents, or the husband, or the wife, or the community. Society is blamed for the crime of the juvenile delinquent and of the criminals, and so it is punished. The lawless thus are absolved of guilt and the guilty made innocent while the innocent are punished. Now we must ask the question, because those who are critical of our position will raise it, does the Bible teach nothing of community responsibility? And the answer is yes, of course it does. But the responsibility of the community, according to scripture, is to see that justice be done. It is not that the community is held guilty for the crime, but only that the community is held guilty of the crime if it does not see that justice is done. So there is, in this sense, a community responsibility for justice. In Exodus 24:17, it is made clear that, or Deuteronomy 24:17, it is made clear that the family cannot be blamed nor society. Those who are aliens who are without family cannot be taken advantage of. Justice is not social, it is individual. And social justice is an attack on individual responsibility and the immunity of the innocent. Therefore, the community has a responsibility both to see that justice is done and to protect those who are alone as they face justice so that the alien, the stranger, must be rendered justice in every situation. There can be no prejudice against him. But it also means that when justice is not done, according to Deuteronomy 21, verses 1 through 9, if a murder cannot be solved, the whole community then bears the responsibility. An atonement had to be made before God, as well as restitution to the offending, the offended person. Thus, in Christian law until fairly recently, within the last century, 
the community had a responsibility when a crime was not solved. In England, for example, a fine was levied upon any district for every unsolved crime because the community had a responsibility. And very often restitution had to be made by the community to the injured party or his heirs if justice were not done. It is interesting at this point to note that the biblical law does not use the word crime. Check a concordance and you'll never find the word crime. Only transgression. Transgression. Now the word transgression indicates a deliberate offensive action. The word crime, which has crept in in modern times, is different. It doesn't indicate responsibility in the same way. A crime has been committed, we say. But when we use the biblical word, there has been a transgression. It is an active word. It indicates that somebody willfully, deliberately was guilty of a transgression or an assault, an offensive action against another. So that the word transgression means a deliberate violation of God's law. Whereas the word crime is neutral, it doesn't necessarily imply an actor. It speaks just of an offense. And you can attach that offense to society or the family or the environment generally. In biblical law, you see, we have an ultimate personalism. The triune God is the author of all things. And every offense is an offense against the person of God primarily and secondarily the person of man. Whereas in modern sociology, in modern criminology, we have a basic impersonalism. Because of its evolutionary perspective, we evolved out of nothing and persons are not uh, the basic thing. Ultimately, there is chaos, impersonal chaos. And so crime, too, is an impersonal kind of thing. It isn't the self-conscious, deliberate act of man. And therefore, you read persons out of offenses, out of crime. And crime becomes an impersonal offense. Thus, law that is humanistic, evolutionary, is disrespectful of persons. Persons are not in charge. Things govern the world. Hence, people are treated very callously by social scientists because their belief is that since man involved out of an impersonal world and has always been manipulated by an impersonal environment, why should man then object when social scientists manipulate him? Because after all, he's never had anything in the way of a personal world. And the best that he can count for is this impersonal social scientist. He's never had it so good. The de-Christianization of society, therefore, is also the depersonalization 
and the destruction of man. Thus our text, Deuteronomy 24, 16, disappears from all society with its belief in individual responsibility or a belief in the personal God where a belief in Christian faith wanes and disappears. To have individual responsibility, we must return to biblical faith. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee that in this world of storm and turmoil, where the foundations are shaking and the earth slips and slides, we have a foundation that cannot be shaken, even by an infallible work. Ground us day by day more firmly on thy word, that so among the many changes of this life, our hearts may surely there be fixed where our true joys are to be found, even in Jesus Christ our Lord. Bless us, our Father, as we ground ourselves on the rock of ages. In Jesus' name, amen. Are there any questions now with respect to our lesson, first of all? Yes. to the civil rights revolution is this anti-Christian doctrine of responsibility. And you are very right in stating that even as we cannot accept responsibility for the crimes committed in the past, neither can we accept the responsibility for the freedom we inherit from the past. Each generation must reestablish again itself on the foundations of godly liberty or it will destroy its inheritance. And this is one of the problems. We pat ourselves too often today on what our forefathers did. And what our forefathers did we are destroying. And of course our Lord attacked the Pharisees because he said, you say, had we been alive in the days of old, we would not have stoned the prophets. But he said, 
you yourself are the same as those who stoned the prophets and are doing the same today in that you will crucify me. So he made it clear that uh, they could not claim virtue from the past any more than guilt can be inherited from the past. Another question. Yes. Yes. So that you're right. When Christ saves us, he saves us not only from our sin, but he regenerates us so that our old sinful nature is transformed. And the new man now in us, Jesus Christ, is of a different nature. Now, the old Adam is judicially dead, but he is still alive and kicking, and the process of sanctification is to mortify the old man and to make the new man, Jesus Christ, more and more the ruling force in our lives. Yes. Is there a significance to all this rain that we are having? Well, uh, that's a good question. Now, one of the points that the Bible does make is that when a people offend God, among the things by which he judges them are storms and droughts, various kinds of natural disasters. And we must say on top of that, that when storms come, if man has sinned against God by his abuse of the earth, those storms carry a more fearful consequence. In other words, when men deal with the earth with contempt for the realities of the earth, then they pay for it. For example, the kind of construction that has been going on in areas where there should be no construction or else there should be deep foundations where the earth can slip, where there's a shale uh, underneath the surface, uh, to build as they have is clearly wrong. And they know enough of geology to know that you can't do that sort of thing. Or a great deal of the damage around the state has been because of our highway department. They're road cuts. They cut into a bank and uh, then heavy storms erode that bank and the whole thing begins to slide. So these are judgments on us. And these things do bring out some of the consequences. While we're on this matter, there's something I'd like to call to your attention. We've been treated to a lot of fraud lately in the papers and on television and radio in this indignation over the oil leak. Now that was terrible. But what is the answer they're proposing? Federal controls. Now who are the worst offenders as far as polluting the ocean? Governments, state and city and, count and uh, federal go uh, government agencies. 
Now, the destruction wrought by this oil leak is one thing that has happened from the oil companies in I don't know how many years of offshore drilling. But every day of every year, the pollution here, for example, just here alone, is phenomenal in the sewage that is dumped into the ocean. It's killed off the kelp beds to a great extent, and the kelp beds are basic to a great deal of industry. The kelp beds are used. Uh, they're harvested for a great deal of industrial use. With the killing off of the kelp beds, the fishing has been hurt. Go up the coast, say, to Santa Cruz Bay, and the pollution there has destroyed, uh, or Monterey Bay, has destroyed the uh, tremendous canning industry. Cannery Row, for example, at Monterey is now gone. All the canneries that were once there, block after block of them, I think there are three or four operating, and they're operating out of fish that's brought in from Alaska, and so on. Go up to the San Francisco Bay and you find the same thing. In other words, a, a great to-do is being made about this oil slick, which is bad, but is a once-in-a-generation thing and nothing about the continual pollution. For example, a very interesting fact of pollution. The most fearful pollution in North America is Lake Erie. Where is the pollution coming? It is coming from industrial waste that is dumped and urban waste all of which is under federal agencies which are allowing this to continue, or city governments. And it's continuing incessantly to the point that in Cleveland today and adjacent areas, one of the major fire hazards are the rivers that flow into Lake Erie. Now, have you ever heard of rivers as a fire hazard? The rivers catch on fire regularly. It's dangerous to flick a cigarette butt into the uh, various streams around Lake Erie because of the tremendous amount of gases generated plus the oil and various industrial waste. The sewage alone generates a considerable amount of gas. And today, they're frightened about what is beginning to happen in Lake Erie. The deposits of various sewage and wastes and so on are at a depth of 25 to 125 feet. And the various chemicals in this huge sludge are beginning to combine to form various gases, and they're afraid of what may happen and the tremendous destruction this could wreak. And yet, all this is under government agencies, you see. Well, I got off on a bypass there, but it's a very important point today. So that next time someone talks about the oil slick, agree with them, it's bad. But worse is what is happening every day of every year. Yes? I'm not sure I've asked the question the way I want to, but... Uh, you raised the question about God's punishment uh, or his judgment being uh, evident in catastrophic uh, mm -hmm. natural 
responsibility for individual sins and a national responsibility for national sins. And God very definitely then brings judgment. It's very interesting to go through American history and see how God has used, for example, the weather to protect people. Now, a few years ago, a lawyer, Timothy Campbell, wrote an interesting book on how God had providentially used the weather and natural circumstances to make possible uh, this country. And how, for example, uh, when the pilgrims landed, they would have, had they landed a year or two earlier, been wiped out by the Indians. But in the winter prior to their landing, an epidemic of plague had virtually wiped out Indians from North America, from uh, New England, so that the settlement of the pilgrims was possible there. And then he begins from that to trace how again and again in subsequent history, and for example, in the War of Independence, the weather saved the American cause that we would have been completely destroyed had it not been for providential storms and circumstances which delivered us. Now, there's a long, long history of this sort of thing so that we must say God does use the weather to bring judgment or blessing upon a people. Yes. That this is a matter of cause and effect rather than God? I get your point, but let's uh, state uh, cause and effect require a belief in God. In other words, people who do not believe in God do not believe in causality. This is why your modern philosophers and your modern philosophers of science deny the concept of causality and substitute for it a probability concept because they deny causality. To say that there is cause and effect is to imply that there is a person behind things, you see. And they deny the person of God. 
We have been hearing the last two Monday nights, and I urge you to come tomorrow night to hear Dr. Bolton David Heiser in our Cal Teton lectures. There are some notices in the back. And in those lectures, Dr. David Heiser has been pointing out very tellingly this past week to what lengths they go to deny that there is any cause, that things have just happened, that there is no law. And he cited this last week one major scientist who criticized various scientific textbooks because they referred to the idea of law and of cause, to purpose, to meaning. And he said, we must remove all such concepts from our textbooks to make them truly scientific. Yes. Very good point. Uh, the, the statement was, since all scientists work with uh, the laws of thermodynamics, how can they deny this? Well, the answer is they're schizophrenic. As Dr. Van Til has pointed out, when they work in the laboratory, they work in terms of the laws of thermodynamics and whatever other laws they're dealing with. When they get out of the laboratory, they deny these things. So they are taking advantage of the fact that the world is God's world and that there is a law in it and that there is causality without admitting that they do so. If they were true to their statements, then they could have no science because they would have to say there is absolutely no order in the world, no law, no causality, nothing follows from something else. So they are dishonest to themselves. Thus, we must say, if they were faithful to their beliefs, they could have no science. Yes, did you have it? Oh, all right. Oh, yes. God is the first cause, and everything else, whether it be man or natural forces, constitutes a secondary cause. All secondary causes are determined by the first cause, God. Yes. Yes. Behind the what? Oh, yes. Because of the rain, it's a little hard to hear today. The Biafra problem in Nigeria has several uh, things attached to it. First, most of the Christians of Nigeria are in Biafra. And while they are trying to deny it, this is in part a religious war. And the Christians of Biafra are being systematically wiped out. Second, these new African states are dummy countries. There is nothing to tie them together. 
because, for example, in what is called Congo today, there are any number of tribes that are totally unrelated to one another, different culturally, very hostile to each other, and the idea of bringing them together is nonsense. The whole purpose of having these countries is to have units of manipulation. Actually, there is more control of these peoples in Africa now than when they were under colonial administration. But if they allow these people to split up, then the ability to control will be gone. So that if Africa split into as many countries as the people of Africa would like to split, how could you possibly manipulate these African countries? You'd have a different country every few miles as a different tribal group said, we want our independence. And the result is there is a hostility to independence by Biafra for this reason. Now, after talking so much about the rights of the colonial peoples to self-determination, it reveals the hypocrisy of all of this by opposing the right of the Biafrans to self-determination. So that this whole facade of liberation is a lie. It has been hypocrisy from the beginning. Well, our time is up and we are adjourned and I trust you get home in safety. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christ Rules dot com